Let's open James, and let's look at James chapter 2. And uh, if you've been with me so far in this series, you'll know that James has a complex writing style, but he does have a very simple point, and that is faith is a big deal. And if you want to know what faith is all about, it's not about what we think, it is in fact about what we do. Faith is about what we do. Now, when I was at college, I had a friend, and my friend had all these inspirational posters all around his room, and some of them had even spilled out into the corridor, which was a fairly aggressive move, and the posters were all made by one company called No Fear. It's a skateboard company, and each poster depicted somebody doing something crazy, like climbing or riding or abseiling or dangling off a cliff or, or sometimes just drinking a cup of tea but in a very dangerous way. And beneath each image, there was an inspirational quote about the kind of things that you can achieve in this life when you have no fear or when you buy their overpriced trousers. And at the time, as all these posters were around, we lived up north in England near the Lake District, the mountains and the lakes up north. And if you've never been to the English lakes and mountains, it is absolutely perfect there. On a good day, you can't see Scotland. It's a wonderful place. Uh, Basically, it is Scotland, actually, without the unemployment, the haggis, or the drugs. It's a wonderful place. Are you still with me? I feel that the crowd's on my side. Uh, Thing is, every single time, come on, stick with it, church. I've been able to get away with this stuff for six months, because there's been no one here to throw stuff at me. Oh, is the, you know why the internet keeps going down? It's because Bridget pulls the plug when I go off on, on like this. So, uh, yeah, that's right. So I get back to the French, yes, that's a good idea. Every single time we invited our friend to come up climbing with us and, and hiking, he always said no. Because there's always a, a video game to play or a show to watch on TV. And uh, after all of these no's, eventually we stopped inviting him. And we realized that the posters were complete rubbish. There was a huge difference between what he said and what he did. All these no-fear posters, but he was filled with fear. And uh, we used to joke, whenever we got to the top of a mountain, we used to joke about what it was exactly that he had no fear to do, whether it was completing Need for Speed 2 on his computer or just watching another episode of Jerry Springer on TV. It does date it a little. It was the 90s. Now, claiming to have a faith and doing absolutely nothing with it at all is every bit as ridiculous as littering your bedroom with no-fear posters and then sitting amongst them on a TV screen and doing nothing. And much of the letter of James is an expansion or an exposition of this very simple point, that if you have a faith, then let us see it working. If you've got a faith, let's, let's see it doing something. And this series of vignettes that appear throughout the letter of James might seem a little bit random to us, but they're examples and illustrations and applications of a simple point. So we have a new one today, another. James 2 verse 1, an example of the kind of thing a working faith looks like. And he says this, show no partiality. That means don't be rude about Scotland, and I repent. Uh, Partiality just means treating people unequally, unfairly, with uh, prejudice. It's a very horrible idea, but it is a really cool word. 
I'd never looked at the word before. I really dug into it this week. I discovered in the original Greek, this word partiality is actually a conjunction of two well-known words. It means face and receive. Partiality, literally, in the original Greek, means a face receiver. That's what the word is. It means to welcome or, by implication, reject someone based on nothing more than how they look. That's what the word means. Don't do that, says James. It's really clear. Now, James wouldn't say that unless we did it, would he? James wouldn't instruct us to not do something unless we had a a bit of a tendency to do it. The Bible isn't in the habit of addressing subjects that don't exist. So to illustrate to us just how easy it is to show partiality in a church, James paints this little picture here of a typical church scene. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and... If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? You've practiced economic apartheid. That's what you've done. There's a throne up front for the rich and just some straw at the back for the poor person to to sit down in the cheap seats and kneel in the filth. You've You've shown partiality. You've made distinctions. And I hope that as you read that little bit in James, that exaggerated church scene that is just depicted for us, you're appalled. You know, you wouldn't do that. I know you. You would not do that. But it's an exaggerated illustration to get us to question whether we do a sort of milder version of this sometimes. And we wouldn't be talking about it if we never did. It is easy to defer to people of power. It is easy to overlook those without it. Uh, Maybe even sometimes we act as a person of power in order to get what we want. Want an upgrade on a flight? Wear a nice jacket. It works. We all know it works. Nothing wrong with it either. But have we done that in the church, is James's question. Well, two friends of mine, they're both pastors, They've both told me very similar stories of precisely this thing happening. And as I tell this story, uh, and you think maybe I'm plagiarizing or I've exaggerated or tweaked it in some way, I haven't. Maybe you know one like it because it's quite typical. And this is a true story with a a side salad of another true story mixed in. Uh, In each of these accounts, someone gave a very large check to the church and As they handed the check over, they said to the pastor, here is what I want you to do for me in exchange. One of the guys even ostentatiously folded it up and put it inside the pastor's shirt pocket, patted it, and said to him, now this is what I want you to do for me. Now one of the pastors who had this experience just said, look, God doesn't need your money. I'm afraid I cannot make any kind of undertaking to you. That was the the very nice and polite pastor. The other pastor, the shirt pocket pastor, took the check out of his shirt pocket and he stuffed it into the donor's pocket, patted him on his chest and said, you can take your check with you to hell. (laughs) Short version. Um, The night's conversation led to no repentance at all, but the rough one did. 
This is a true story. Weeks went by, and there was a terrible storm outside. And one night, there's a knock at the rectory door. And the guy with the check in the pocket was standing outside of the door, completely drenched. And the pastor said to him, well, come on in. You know, are you okay? What is wrong? And the guy said, I've been walking up and down outside this house for an hour, terrified about the conversation that we're about to have, and afraid to admit that I was wrong. But I don't want to go to hell. And here is a check for twice the amount. And I want nothing in exchange for it. It's a true story. Uh, you know both of the ministers that this happened to. And one of them said to me that he was afraid to tell me the story because I'd be the only pastor he knew stupid enough to preach it. <laughs> but I think he wanted me to do it. I get that sense. Why do we do this? Why do we defer to people of power. Well, uh, partly it's just aspirational. We look up to people who've done well, and we should do. Uh, partly it's fear. You do not want to mess with well-connected folk. Partly it's selfish. Maybe if I get them on my side, there will be something in it for me. Why does it matter? Is it really a big deal? What's so bad about partiality anyway? Well, we have two clues about how James feels. Hints, really before he says so more explicitly. And uh, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, we're about to start the sermon, my brothers. And again, verse 5, my beloved brothers, an amplification of the same sentiment, he's talking to us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember who James is. James is the biological brother of Jesus. Uh, if anyone wants to boast about their status and take uh, a sort of throne at the front... It could be James, but he doesn't. James views his relationship with Jesus through faith as being far more important than his relationship by birth. And he describes you as exactly like him. Describes you as a brother or a sister of equal status with him, the actual brother of Jesus. The spiritual identity that we have in Christ the eternal identity that we have in Christ overwhelms and it overrides our, our physical identities and our temporal identities. The big deal is you are an equal brother or sister in Christ. Second clue about how James feels in verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? Have you not separated, that's what the word means, divided up that which God intended to be one? So it's not just that you've treated one person really well and one person really badly and everyone else just kind of getting on with the normal church stuff. James is saying, no, you are one body. You've done harm to everybody with this kind of distinction. We all suffer. You have divided up the unity of the whole church. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. In a few moments, we'll gather around one table and we'll have one cup. Now, we've got the little tiny ones, but you notice that the chalice is still set up at the front because it is symbolic. The cup of grace. There's one body. We'll say these words in a few moments. And James is saying to us, you've torn up that which God has wed together. These are just hints at how he feels. Now he gets more explicit and aggressive. We have become, he says, judges with evil thoughts. Now that's a pretty strong statement. You might be like, Arr! 
where's that come from? You know, how do we get from, do sit here, you have a nice jacket, to being an evil judge? Like, that does seem like this, this got serious fast, right? Well, you might also be thinking, actually, if it's evil to give someone with a nice jacket a good seat, I hope they don't ask me to be a greeter. It's a dangerous job, is it not? But what he's doing here is James is, is cueing into a, a well-known theme in the Old Testament, a, a well-known link between the way we look at people and judgment. And he's saying to us, church, be careful that your proclivity to defer to people of power doesn't get out of control and lead you into corruption. So, for example, I think this is what's on his mind, Leviticus 19. It says, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Context. It was common in those days for the well-connected and the well-to-do to use their resources to take the weak to court and to use the legal system to get one over on them. And it was also common for the community to be drawn into this kind of litigation. And it was common for those who were weak to side with those who were strong, just simply uh, to keep them happy. That is unrighteous. If your judgments are corrupt just to keep the people of power happy, that's wrong. God does not judge like that, and so we should not. Now, I've said before, James can be a really difficult letter to follow. It's quite difficult to preach if you have the exegetical style that we do in this church of trying to just look at the whole counsel of God's word verse by verse. And uh, fans of quantum physics might well call this uh, Schrodinger's epistle. As James, you know, even just looking at it seems to affect it. And uh, a point will just appear randomly in, in more than one place at, at once. And it's quite confusing to read. Uh, someone said to me, that it reminds them actually not of science, but more of art. And that James reminds them of a jazz musician who riffs on a theme. And how, you know, a kind of piece comes together and fades away and then reappears again in a slightly different way later on in the song. It's a good image. James riffs like a jazz musician on the theme of judgment now. Just keeps coming up in slightly different ways. Verse 5. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Guess what? God chooses who comes into his church. And often, in God's economy, poverty is an advantage when it comes to faith. Often, the less we have, the more we trust in God. Now, we know this. Pastorally, I know this from many conversations. How many times have people said to you in this church, that it was in the hardest times where their faith grew the most, right? It was one of those moments, I can see you nodding, one of those moments where, uh, and it's nice to be nodded at for, you know, after all these months, but how many times has someone just said to you, you know, I've been through this terrible thing, but I found myself praying more or reading more? Uh, how many people have said to you that the, during the pandemic, their faith has grown? You know, that's the, that's the thing, that uh, often it's when we're suffering the most, when our resources have run out, when we've come up against a problem that is beyond our human capacity to fix, that we are forced to trust in God more than usual. When crisis comes, faith grows. Thus, someone badly off in this world might well be in a far better place with God than you are. 
when we look at their face and we judge them on how they look superficially, we misjudge the more serious matter of their hearts. Moreover, little riff, think for a moment, practically, how is your partiality working out for you, says James? Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones, verse 7, who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So James's church is poor. It is surrounded by rich people who are constantly picking on them and taking advantage of their grace. And James says, don't suck up to someone like that. But you can love them, he goes on to say. Verse 8, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, whoever they are. And verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. So it's another riff on the theme of judgment now. Instead of us judging other people, suddenly it's us that are being judged. Suddenly we're on trial. You judge other people, but God judges you. And says James, if you want to be judged well, then you have two options. If you want to be judged well by God, you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have two options to get there. Option number one. Just keep the whole law. Just be perfect in every single way. Uh, Past, present, and future. Always, in every way. The problem is this. Here's the trick. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. If the pass mark is perfect, then really, really good will not do. And even if you decide to be perfect from here on out and you manage it, were you perfect yesterday, says James? you're in trouble. And so God, if you recognize that this is true about you and you're not actually God, God provides a second path to the verdict that you want in the trial at the end of this life. And the second path, James says, verse 13, is this law of liberty, a different law. It's the gospel. Uh, Through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ, We can be liberated from our sin. We can be set free from all of our imperfections. We can be freed also from the judgment that rightfully flows from this. It doesn't just disappear. Christ is judged for us, and we are set free in his place. And this is all through the mercy of God, James says at the end of this passage. Any one of us can receive this good news. God is impartial. Any single one of us can turn to faith at any single time. When we do, when we gain a faith, very slowly our behavior starts to catch up to it, and what we do starts to move into line with what we believe. And this keeps going until it becomes difficult and then even impossible for us to judge other people anymore. Let's pray. Oh God, it's, it's so exciting to see your gospel written so clearly on the pages of Scripture. And Father, uh, it is almost certain that in some way we've thought things about people and uh, made judgments in our hearts, but you, God, forgive us for those things. Thank you. So, Father God, I pray that uh, when our enemies are about, we would love them. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would... Bless and protect this church. 
In the majestic name of Jesus Christ. Amen.